The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words roughly paraphrased from Gramsci, I welcome you to Morbid Symptoms, the podcast of the Time of Monsters newsletter. Uh, and today I wanted to talk about the French election, um, which is coming up this uh, weekend. Um, and uh, has been a cause of concern, uh, not just in France, but like in the sort of uh, wider world uh, because of um, it's once again, a matchup between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen um, uh, as in 2017. And uh, this time the polling is a little bit closer. Uh, a few weeks ago uh, in March, uh, it was actually looking like Le Pen uh, was really making strides um, uh, towards uh, uh, possibly winning. Um, she's kind of stalled a little bit in the polls, but there's that still a possibility. Uh, so I want to talk about the French election, but also the broader state of French politics. And I'm very happy to have um, on here um, uh, Arthur Goldhammer, uh, who um, is uh, one of the sort of outstanding American experts on France, a sort of a reverse uh, de Tocqueville, if you will. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's the uh, translator of uh, more than a, a hundred books, uh, uh, including famously uh, Piketty's Capital, um, and, uh, but also a, a novelist and a frequent writer on French um, affairs. Uh, he's an affiliate at Harvard Center for European Studies. Um, and for myself, and I think for like many people in the Anglophone world, this is one of our chief guides into understanding um, not just French politics, but French history and French culture. So um, Art, I'm very happy to uh, have you on. Well, thanks for the invitation. I'm pleased to be here. So uh, do we want to, let's just talk about the, the election more broadly. Uh, uh, where do you think things stand now uh, in, in terms of uh, what's likely to happen in terms of uh, where the polling stands, but also what are the uh, outlier possibilities? Uh, well, I think your uh, summation at the beginning was pretty accurate. Uh, Marine Le Pen uh, started this election campaign in a very strong Position, surprisingly, uh, by a candidate named Eric Zemmour. Uh, before he entered the race, polling had heard about uh, 32%, even ahead of uh, Emmanuel Macron at that point. But when Zemmour entered, he immediately took away half of her votes. Uh, he was more radical, more outspoken, more anti immigrant, uh, more. Uh, uh, chauvinistically nationalist than even Le Pen was. Uh, however, he was also uh, much more pro-Putin uh, than Le Pen. And when the war in Ukraine began, when Russia invaded, uh, his pro-Putin position began to uh, uh, take voters away from him. Uh, he started to slip badly uh, and rapidly in the polls. Uh, and Le Pen recouped almost all of the votes that uh, Zemmour had uh, taken from her. In the end, in the first round of the, this two-round election, uh, Zemmour finished with only 7%, uh, Le Pen with uh, uh, just under 23 uh, And that jockeying had allowed uh, Macron to reinforce his position, which uh, in fact had not really wavered from the first round in 2017 when he got about 24%. Uh, this year, he uh, slightly improved his score, uh, just under 28%, or perhaps just over, I don't remember the exact numbers. 
partly uh, because he got a bounce from his efforts to head off the uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So we're back to uh, another uh, second round face-off between Le Pen and Macron. There will be a debate tomorrow, uh, tomorrow evening in France. Uh, in 2017, Macron roundly won the debate. Uh, Le Pen was reduced to uh, a muddle, a terrible confusion about her own policy. Uh, she looked very bad and uh, Macron won handily with 66% of the vote. Polls this year show him doing much less well. Uh, uh, the uh, best uh, poll ranking I've seen for the second round puts him at 54 uh, to her 46, and the worst at 51 to 49. Uh, and I, we'll see the, the last polls uh, on Thursday or Friday. I think after Friday, no, no further polls can be punished, uh, published in France. So uh, going into the second round, it looks like a narrow victory for Macron, but anything could happen. And we don't know how this debate will turn out. Uh, my, either candidate can make a slip and debates always turn more on optics than on issues. So uh, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Yeah, no, that's right. And I, I think maybe one way to think about it is that, you know, like there's a from the polls right now, it, it does look like Macron is heading for re-election, but that there's a you know, there's a not insignificant chance that um, uh, if there's enough of a polling error uh, or if things change in the next few days, um, Le Pen could win. And, you know, like depending, you know, like in some ways, I, I feel like these sort of, you know, Nate Silver type predictions are always a bit like uh, <laughs> dubious uh, in terms of, you know, like if they're exact numbers. But, you know, one, one could surely say that, you know, there's perhaps at least a 10% chance, you know, maybe a 20 or 30% chance that Le Pen could win. And, you know, when one considers, you know, what her politics are, what her family uh, history and the politics of her particular um, clan are, I mean, that, that's a very shocking uh uh, development that you know there's is the that much of a chance um yeah the, the, I, I mean I, I just tell us it's like you know back in 2016 I always thought wrongly it turned out that Hillary Clinton would win but I also thought that like you know I accepted Nate Silver's analysis that there was a 30 percent chance Trump could win and I always thought you know considering who Trump is 30 percent is way too high like like you know like that's like playing Russian roulette with two bullets instead of just one uh uh, absolutely. The precedents that stand out in my mind are the Hillary uh, versus Trump election and the Brexit election, both of which occurred in 2016. And uh, both of those were shocking results to many of us. The polls had been comforting on the eve of those elections. And then uh, we woke up uh, in the morning uh, completely stunned by uh, the way things turned out. Uh, when Macron was elected in 2017, uh, we hoped that this would be the beginning of the reversal of that trend, where uh, we were going to be surprised by uh, hidden populist uh, reserves of power that uh, the pollsters and uh, many political observers hadn't uh, suspected. But uh, this year, uh, I, for one, am much less confident uh, of that, uh, partly chastened by those two precedents. Yeah, that's right. And I think maybe another way to look at it is beyond the um, this current election, just a longer trend line, you know, which is, you know, like uh, there was a 2017, this is a rematch of 2017, but even beyond that, um, uh, Le Pen's uh, father, uh, uh, 
you know, had run uh, uh, previously. And it does seem like the longer trend line is that the, the Le Pens are getting closer and closer to winning it, right? Like, and this is like, uh, you know, if one uses the Russian roulette uh, analogy, like it's just like, you know, like if they keep running and if they are the main like um, second choice, then at some point you're gonna get like them running against a centrist candidate where um, the the economic conditions or the social conditions are such, uh, or the the candidate they're running against is weak enough that they could win, right? Like like it just seems like that seems like almost inevitable if this is the uh, the long run trend. Yeah, um, the fortunes of the Le Penist party, which has gone under two different names, uh, have been up and down. So the party was uh, founded back in the uh, uh, late 60s by uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen. It was then called the Fonds National. Uh, and it was uh, uh, a, a continuation of uh, French reactionary politics going all the way back to World War II in collaboration with the Nazis. Uh, and then particularly uh, out of the Algerian war, this uh, uh, reaction uh, uh, against uh, 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 immigration to France and uh, uh, against the loss of French colonies was what launched uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen into politics. Um, he uh, came uh, as close uh, as he would ever come in 2002 when he uh, surprised uh, the socialist candidate Lionel Jospin in uh, uh, the first round of that election. He got uh, just a half a percentage point more than Jospin, but no one expected that. And so he made it into the second round. And in that year, uh, Jacques Chirac was elected in the second round by with 82% of the vote because everyone on the right and left, socialists and Gaullists who had bitterly opposed each other uh, for many, many years, uh, came together in what uh, the French uh, used to call a, a Republican front in order to stop what they saw as an anti-Republican party, someone who was, whose values were not consistent with the values of the Fifth Republic, uh, that being Jean-Marie Le Pen. Uh, Le, Pen uh, Le Pen's fortunes declined after that high watermark in 2002. And in 2007, the uh, uh, next presidential election, Nicolas Sarkozy running on the Gaullist ticket, but uh, in with quite a different uh, platform from uh, that of Jacques Chirac, uh, essentially uh, poached on uh, Le Pen's territory. He had taken a kind of uh, harder core anti-immigrant line uh, and that drew votes away from Le Pen. Uh, at that point, many people were speculating that Le Pen's party was finished. Uh, he was getting old. He'd done very badly against Sarkozy. Sarkozy seemed to have found the formula for which the Gaulists had been searching for a very long time uh, to win back the votes that had deserted to the far right. Uh, and uh, it looked like Le Pen was on his way out. But a few years later, he turned the reins of the party over to his daughter, Marine, who uh, took a, a different approach to uh, winning the presidency. She tried to soften her image. Uh, expelled anti-Semites from the party, and anti-Semitism had been a big part of its program, along with uh, anti-Islam and anti-Arab and uh, hostility to immigrants in general. Uh, so uh, she began to soften her image, uh, uh, changed the name in the party to Rassemblement National, 
uh, began to appeal more uh, directly to the working class by presenting herself as a protectionist party, which would protect France from the damage done by the European Union to French workers, many of whom believed they had lost their jobs because of competition from other countries in the European Union and the inability under the terms of the European Union treaties uh, of France to uh, enact protectionist policies. Uh, so over the next uh, decade, Marine Le Pen built her party into the largest working class party in France. More members of the working class now vote for her than for any other party, including the extreme left party of Jean-Luc Mélenchon. So uh, uh, by taking this new tech, she's turned the fortunes of her party around and built it into uh, what is now the second uh, most potent, or <laughs> Sunday will tell us whether it's the second or the first most potent political force in France. Uh, what the first round has already told us is that uh, uh, the combined effects of her movement and Macron's movement uh, have reduced the traditional mainstream parties, the, the Gaullist party, which now calls itself Les Républicains, and the Socialist party on the left to uh, mere shadows of their former self uh, selves. Uh, the Gaullists got only 7% behind the candidate Valérie Pécresse, and the Socialists got a truly humiliating score of 1.8% behind the mayor of Paris on Hidalgo. Uh, so that's, that's where we are in French politics today. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I feel like that's the one of the true uh, hidden stories as well, like aside from the obvious rise of Le Pen and in some ways the rise of Macron, um, the, who has taken up that centrist space, who has like, you know, has uh, managed to combine some um, mixed level of politics. Uh, you know, like just as Le Pen mixes elements of the left and right of sort of, you know, sort of protectionism and, um, uh, you know, concern for the working class with anti-immigration feeling. Macron himself, like, you know, mixes the, you know, sort of social liberalism or um, uh, with a sort of centrist technocracy and uh, neoliberal reform. So, so, um, but the flip side of that is that the the more traditional parties of the center left and center right have um, uh, really dwindled, and uh, to some extent, um, my friend John Gans, uh, who I think you know as well, uh, you know, says that we're living the age of ideological warlords of these kind of outsized media personalities who kind of who head up dynasties and have media empires or media personas and are are the face of politics, and they um, that has replaced you know what we knew from the 20th century of like you know strong, disciplined, organized political parties perhaps more in Germany than like necessarily in, in France or the United States, but still like, you know, like, like the socialist party, you know, was a, a, a real force. Um, so I mean, like, how does one think about that? Like, like what are some of the factors that might ca have caused, you know, um, um, these ideological warlords uh, to replace uh, uh, political parties? Yeah, well, I'm glad you raised that question because it uh, takes me back through my own uh, history as an observer of French politics. Uh, I first became interested in 1968, uh, in part because uh, politics in the United States seemed to be a contest between two parties that were not that uh, different from one another, the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, 
uh, had fairly similar centrist policies, whereas France had these uh, strongly organized political parties that were deeply polarized uh, uh, with Marxist influence on the left and uh, uh, conservative uh, Gaullist uh, uh, programs on the right. But they were real parties. Uh, and one became a leader of the party by uh, coming up through the ranks of the party. Uh, you were you didn't just appear on the media. You had to appear at party meetings and uh, cut your uh, eye teeth by making speeches at party congresses. And you were vetted by uh, other members of the party, more experienced. Uh, so the young talent was picked up by the older talent. And it was a more intimate form of uh, generating political leadership. Uh, over the years, however, the uh, positions of these two parties became less and less polarized. This really began in 1981 when Mitterrand was elected. It was the first uh, uh, instance of what the French call l'alternance, uh, the uh, election of the opposition party. Uh, from the time the Fifth Republic had been founded by General de Gaulle in uh, 1958 uh, and the first presidential election in 62, the Gaullists had ruled without uh, challenge. In 81, uh, Mitterrand came to power with a, an explicit program of uh, rupture with capitalism. It was, uh, at least in rhetorical terms, it was going to be a revolutionary program. Uh, unfortunately, he came to power at the time when the uh, other major powers in the capitalist world, uh, the US and the UK, were both turning to neoliberalism. So socialism in one country was not really a viable program as Mitterrand learned to his regret uh, in the first two years of his presidency, uh, which led to what the French called the famous U-turn of 1983, when uh, it was decided that they were not going to uh, break with capitalism after all, uh, and that the only way for the French social democratic welfare state to survive was to reach some kind of compromise with their partners in the European Union, which they promptly did. Uh, Mitterrand changed his policy from uh, one of uh, break with capitalism to one of uh, realizing uh, a capitalist welfare state within the context of the European Union. And he really threw all of his weight behind the European Union. Well, that was a, a, a position that uh, the Gaullists uh, did not find as threatening as they had found the threat of Marxist revolution. Uh, and over the next uh, 20, 30 years, the two parties really uh, uh, converged in their policies uh, to the point where uh, policies opposed by one party when it was out of power would be enacted by that same party when it came into power, uh, leading many voters in France to feel that they weren't being given a choice. Uh, so when Mitterrand, uh, when uh, Macron, uh, Macron uh, came to public prominence, not by this party route, he was not a member of any party. He had served governments in two different parties, first with the Gaullists under Sarkozy. He was uh, then uh, a young uh, secretary to a committee led by Jacques Attali that was considering fundamental reforms of French economic policy. And then when uh, Hollande was elected uh, in 2012, uh, Macron moved over to the socialist side and began working for Hollande, the first uh, 
within the Alize Palace uh, itself as a top level bureaucrat and then as uh, economics minister. So uh, for many voters, this represented, uh, this symbolized the fact that the, the two parties were no longer as differentiated as they once had been. Uh, but Macron broke with Hollande uh, and forged for himself a very clever media-oriented strategy. As you point out, the media have become now the medium by which uh, 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 political leaders come to prominence. So he uh, ran uh, as a reformer who would be neither of the right nor the left. Uh, and he offered as his credential to back that claim up the fact that he had worked for both sides, uh, but he was going to infuse into reform uh, a kind of Silicon Valley type energy. He frequently spoke of the start, uh, transforming France into a startup economy, a startup nation. Uh, and he had this uh, very youthful energy, reminiscent uh, for those old enough to remember of JFK when he ran for the presidency in the US. Uh, and he fascinated the media. So he got a tremendous amount of, of uh, political coverage, uh, TV coverage in particular, uh, for his campaign. Now, this year, uh, Eric Zemmour tried the same strategy. Uh, Zemmour came to prominence as a TV commentator, uh, a polemicist, as the French newspapers like to call him. Uh, he was not only a political commentator, but also a book reviewer. He was ubiquitous on uh, quite a number of talk shows and had a very uh, abrasive, uh, acerbic kind of personality, a bit like Donald Trump in some ways. Uh, but if you can imagine an intellectual Donald Trump, if that's not a contradiction in terms, uh, that's the uh, sort of uh, personality he was. Uh, many people were pressing him to run for president, uh, and he finally decided to do so. He became, uh, as I said earlier, even more nationalist and uh, anti-immigrant than Le Pen. Uh, and that brought him a lot of notoriety and for a while, a great deal of media coverage. Uh, I, in fact, uh, wrote a software program that tracked uh, the uh, number of articles written about each of the candidates and uh, Zemmour dominated everyone else uh, for uh, quite some time. Uh, until uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, so uh, the other point uh, to reinforce uh, what you're uh, telling us about uh, these uh, media entrepreneurs uh, now emerging as political leaders is to note that the French media landscape uh, has changed also in the past 10 years. France did not uh, formerly have uh, any equivalent of Fox News, but now it has two. Uh, there's a station called uh, Say News, uh, which uh, uh, aspires to be a, a French uh, uh, emulator of Fox News. It's owned by a billionaire, just as Rupert Murdoch owns Fox News. Uh, the, this uh, billionaire's name is Vincent Bolloré. He had been a Sarkozy supporter in the in the past, uh, that is uh, right wing nationalist, but uh, not necessarily uh, seen as uh, uh, bigoted, uh, anti-immigrant, anti-Islam, and so on. But this year, he chose to back uh, Eric Zemmour, who was given uh, uh, several hours a week uh, on on the CNews channel to vent his political diatribes uh, against Macron, in particular. 
and there's also another 24-hour cable channel, BFM TV, which uh, specializes in covering the more sensational uh, events, uh, riots and uh, uh, police brutality and uh, uh, terrorist uh, attacks and uh, things of that sort. So, uh, uh, yes, this change in the media landscape has also abetted the rise of these uh, uh, media czars, if you like, who've become uh, dominant figures in French politics. Yeah, no, I, I, I so I, in a lot of ways, I think um, the one point I would underscore is that, um, you know, there's a lot of French specific um, uh, factors at work, but there's also like these sort of broader trends that one can see in many other Western democracies of a, a sort of a polarization along not left right lines, but sort of system anti system lines. And that the uh, I mean, Macron's political genius, such as it is, is that he's been able to consolidate the pro system vote, um, uh, which, you know, includes the center left and the center right. Uh, and, you know, Le Pen, um, uh, uh, is sort of competing with other figures for the anti-system vote, uh, which again, it has a sort of left and right salience. Um, and I guess the real, I mean, the question um, uh, for me is, uh, you know, the, the left candidate um, uh, who represents the anti-system left, um, Melanchon, you know, did fairly well and came actually surprisingly close uh, uh, to being um, the second uh, place winner in, in the, uh, in the, in the sort of first round. Um, and so, I mean, to win, I think uh, uh, Macron will need to get uh, some of the people that voted for uh, Mélenchon to, uh, to come out and, and vote for him. And I, I, um, the, the, the question is, how, how long can, uh, and I think in the past, the sort of uh, left-wing voters that are anti-system have, you know, uh, uh, joined that Republican front to, you know, say no to reject the Le Pen option. But the open question to me is like, will that continue? Will they stay home? Uh, and again, I mean, like the, perhaps the, uh, for listeners who are in the United States or follow American politics, the, the comparison would be um, in 2016 to you know, voters why they uh, uh, didn't turn out uh, or voted for a third party rather than vote for Hillary Clinton. Yes, uh, I think you raise a very important point there. In all populist movements uh, that we've been witnessing uh, lately, there's a strong uh, people versus elite polarization. Uh, and this is what uh, the populist candidates try to foment uh, and exploit. Uh, in uh, France, as in the United States, there's a certain resentment of uh, particularly the educational elite people who owe their advancement and uh, safe, non-precarious positions within the system uh, to their having excelled in school. Uh, we see this particularly strongly in France where the administrative elite holds a very powerful position, more powerful than in the United States. Uh, this is because the French presidential system under the Fifth Republic was deliber deliberately designed to weaken the influence of the parliament. So the president really rules with the aid of the ministries, which are staffed by uh, top-level bureaucrats who are trained in a handful of schools, uh, the schools that uh, Emmanuel Macron himself attended, Sciences Po and the National School of Administration. Uh, these train 
almost all of the members of the French administrative elite. And not only that, uh, those who don't go to work in government also occupy the top levels uh, uh, of French corporate life. So in that respect, it's rather different from the United States, where people who are, succeed as corporate executives often don't come from the same world as those who succeed uh, in the government bureaucracy. In France, you have this consolidated elite, which uh, becomes the target of a good deal of populist resentment. Uh, Marine Le Pen has uh, known how to capitalize on that, in part because Macron so fully uh, epitomizes this uh, uh, particular elite uh, in the way he dresses, in the way he talks, in the arrogance that he sometimes exhibits when talking to people who come from outside that world. Uh, he once told an unemployed person that all he had to do was cross the street to find a job uh, in describing a French high-tech incubator, one of the uh, new uh, uh, innovative uh, technology centers that uh, Macron has helped to foster in France. To his credit, he said, uh, this incubator has been built in a, in, on the site of a former train station, and train station is where you meet all kinds of people, including those who amount to nothing. Uh, so uh, people take these remarks as uh, showing real contempt for those who don't share uh, the uh, elite training school background from which Macron comes. Uh, and that's uh, been part of the reason for this loss. Now, uh, to speak to the other point you made about the anti-left, uh, the anti-system vote on the left, yes, uh, Macron now needs to draw from Mélenchon's vote. Mélenchon, uh, who uh, used to be a socialist uh, many years ago, served as a minister under a socialist government, uh, ran five years ago on a ticket with the communist candidate, but this year failed to uh, reach an agreement with the communists. So. Uh, that the two ran separate candidates, which is unfortunate for Macron, because if he had taken the communist vote in addition to his own, he would have beaten Le Pen and made it into the second round. So um, those on the left who uh, did not want to vote for Macron and who hoped to see a leftist candidate make it into the second round uh, voted for Mélenchon because the polls indicated that they had no other choice. At the beginning of the campaign, there was some hope that either the Green candidate, Yannick Jadot, or the Socialist candidate, uh, Anne Hidalgo, would um, show some signs of life and that there would be an alternative to the Mélenchon vote. Because a lot of voters on the left find Mélenchon just too extreme. He still embodies the idea that France is going to be transformed by a revolution, a break with capitalism, and turn relatively quickly into a totally different kind of economy that will be able to go it, go, go it alone uh, in this globalized world. Uh, many on the left who voted for uh, Mélenchon this time don't necessarily accept that premise, uh, but they saw him as the only viable alternative. So in order to cast what the French call a useful vote, a vote that would not be wasted, they voted for Mélenchon in the hope that even though he uh, was not likely to beat Macron. Uh, polls showed him doing even less well than uh, 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 Le Pen against Macron. Uh, still, it would be good to have a leftist candidate in the debate, so it would not be uh, center versus far right, it would be center versus far left instead. Uh, so uh, 
it was not entirely an anti-system vote for Mélenchon, although a good deal of Mélenchon's vote, and certainly his base, is anti-system. Um, if you try to disentangle the anti-system vote from the useful vote components of uh, uh, Mélenchon's electorate, I would say that eight or nine percent is anti-system, and the remaining uh, twelve percent is. Uh, simply uh, anti-far-right, anti-Macron. There are a lot, a lot of people who uh, don't want to see Le Pen president, but uh, still can't stomach Macron. And the whole question for next Sunday is how many of those there are. Uh, Macron needs to appeal to that group. Well, yeah, no, no, I, I, I think that's right. And I, I think, I mean, to some degree, how much of it, why is this, is it possible that to some degree, it's as close to it as it is, partially for you know reasons that are of Macron's own fault. Uh, some of what you've indicated, you know, like that he is such a perfect embodiment of a sort of French administrative establishment, and you know that's going to turn off you know a chunk of the country uh, 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 off, but also uh, to you know the degree to which he ran as a candidate of you know ambiguously. Uh, hope and change, and then, you know, uh, perhaps um, uh, in governance, you know, um, gave more of the neoliberal end of that equation rather than, uh, you know, and finally, like, just like in more recent times, I mean, wasn't there like uh, just a, a month ago, you know, talking about like raising the retirement age, uh, you know, like that also, all of these things seem like, to my mind, like if you wanted to get a situation where Le Pen, you know, has a has a real shot of winning, <laughs> these are all things that you uh, th that help create that. Yeah, well, there's no doubt that Macron is in part responsible for his uh, own uh, woes. Uh, on the other hand, uh, his, his record, uh, the the negative aspects of his record are exaggerated uh, not only by the other candidates but by a lot of people in France. The detestation of Macron, to my mind, goes far beyond anything that he deserves. Uh, there are quite a number of people in France who compare him to Margaret Thatcher. Uh, I, I, I think that's way off base. I think he's more like Tony Blair. He's a moderate neoliberal reformer. So yes, as you point out, he uh, made some foolish mistakes. Uh, the first of which was made in the very first days uh, of his tenure when he repealed the wealth tax, uh, abolished the wealth tax and re replaced it with a kind of nebulous real estate tax. Um, this was, uh, frankly, for a very intelligent uh, uh, person, a very stupid thing to do, a very stupid political move, uh, because it led to his being cast immediately as the president of the rich. Now, in fact, his various tax reforms, when you take them all together, have been mildly redistributed toward the middle class and away from the upper 20%. Uh, it's true that the top 1% did reap the largest benefit from those tax reforms. That's unfortunate, and that's largely because of the abolition of the wealth tax. Uh, but the broad middle class benefited from uh, Macron's uh, reforms. Uh, it's true, as you point out, that he had proposed to raise the retirement age to 65 uh, and that uh, every retirement for reform proposal gets the French up in arms. Uh, there was a huge uh, 
demonstration against retirement reform, reforms in 1995, which brought down the Juppé government, as you may recall. But uh, let's be honest, if you look at the retirement ages of other countries in Europe, of all of France's economic partners and closest competitors, there is none that's as low as 62, which is uh, what it is in France right now. In Germany, it's 67. In, other in most of the countries, it's 65, as it is in the US. So this is not so much a, a radical reform uh, as one that uh, is meant to bring France into line with its competitors. And France's labor cost, France has a, a large and very generous welfare state, which unlike in the United States, no one is proposing to roll back. Uh, even Marine Le Pen will keep this generous welfare state in place. She's just gonna make it difficult for immigrants and uh, people who are not native born or, dis or descendants of non-native uh, born uh, people, uh, it will become more difficult for them to get uh, these welfare benefits and other social benefits. But uh, no one is going to abolish this welfare state. Now, in order to keep it uh, financially viable, some reforms are necessary. Uh, you can disagree with Macron on the, the details of what reforms are necessary, and I do on, on a number, uh, but uh, he's made changes that um, are, uh, in some ways, um, useful steps toward uh, a more sustainable uh, French welfare state. Uh, he's also, uh, I think, done uh, a fair amount to encourage uh, uh, the high-tech industry in France, which France is well-placed to uh, become uh, a leader in. He's uh, encouraged uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, there have been a lot of startups in Paris since he came to power. But uh, it also has to be noted that his reform efforts were interrupted by two things. First, the revolt of the Gilets Jaunes, uh, which was not entirely directed against Macron, and then COVID. And on COVID, uh, He's actually, despite some missteps at the beginning, uh, has managed uh, COVID uh, fairly well, uh, uh, done a decent job of it, and uh, in fact, uh, has brought France through the COVID crisis uh, with less disruption than a number of other states, including Germany, which initially seemed to fare better, but is now having a harder time with COVID. So Macron has made mistakes, but he's also uh, taken some positive steps. Uh, and that makes you wonder why he incurs so much hatred, uh, such disproportionate hatred. Um, and the only explanation I can see is the one that I gave earlier, that he is the embodiment of this elite against which uh, so many people harbor uh, deep resentment. Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, that's absolutely uh, right. And one sees it like, you know, like one can draw parallels. Um, I'm here in Canada, uh, you know, the there's a real hatred um, uh, among the right and on, on some on the left of uh, Justin Trudeau um, uh, for, I think, very similar reasons. Although I think, you know, Justin is like less of a meritocratic uh, achiever, but still he embodies a certain like uh, Laurentian governing class that has had a uh, outsized power in Canada. And, uh, you know, which if one is outside the system, like, like seems like intolerable, uh, you know, and then maybe some of the hate, um, uh, hatred of Hillary Clinton, in addition to the, you know, the misogyny, some of it also came from uh, her embodiment of, 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 of a particular class in America. 
of uh, uh, meritocratic achievers. Um, yeah, well, I'll, I'll add one other thing uh, to make me sound like less of a Macron shrill, a shill than I sometimes do. Uh, I, I'm not, I assure you. Uh, and uh, personally, I, I don't find him uh, uh, a terribly uh, uh, sympathetic personality, but uh, uh, still, there are more legitimate reasons for um, uh, seeing him as uh, shifty and untrustworthy. One is that I think he's tried to uh, poach, as all French presidents, uh, e even Mitterrand, tried to do on the territory of, of the far right. Mm. Uh, he's made uh, moves to uh, uh, suppress what he calls Islamist separatism, uh, to crack down on religious schools, on homeschooling by Muslims, uh, to require Muslim relig religious schools to use teachers who are trained in France rather than abroad in places like Saudi Arabia, where, according to Macron, uh, they imbibe um, alien ideologies, which become a, a breeding ground for terrorism. Um, he's also made reforms in the schools that... Uh, have, made, have put many school teachers uh, up in arms against him. Uh, changes to the curriculum uh, to make schooling more efficient, uh, to emphasize uh, uh, math and science tracks rather than uh, more humanistic tracks, uh, which uh, have alienated a lot of people. Uh, and he's um, made uh, a number of statements about uh, the French being refractory to reform, recalcitrant to accept uh, positive measures uh, uh, as though uh, what he's doing is self-evidently good and he doesn't need to explain it to anyone. Uh, all the fault lies with his opponents. So uh, in, in those respects, uh, he deserves some of the uh, anger that he's uh, uh, fostered. Yeah, no, I mean, if one were to like think about it, on more systematic terms, I mean, I think your whole point about you know him being of of, of that administrative uh, elite uh, class, um, that class has always been in tension with French democracy, even in, with a politician like Macron who has won elections and has won the presidency. Like, there's a way in which you know um, uh, that expertise stands. Uh, 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 with the implicit view that we need it because the French people themselves are really ungovernable and left to their own devices uh, will not do that. Uh, well, that will, you know, will, will lead to disaster. I, I'm just wondering, like, you know, like on a broader sense, like if you have politics divided along system, anti-system lines, and, you know, like even if one says Macron was a, is a good example of pro-system politics has, you know, with all his faults and uh, missteps, has governed as well as a pro-system politician can, um, you know, in a democracy, at some point, you're going to get a switch, or you're going to get a, a situation where the uh, anti-system feelings uh, will come out at, you know, 51% rather than 49, you know, uh, or uh, 51 rather than 47 or 46. It just seems like inevitable. So, Am I wrong in thinking that, you know, like if this is a polarization that you get, then at some point, some figure, maybe not Le Pen, but, you know, some figure embodying anti-system sentiment will gain the upper hand at some point. Well, it's certainly a worry. And this is the problem of uh, 
trying to uh, create a government of the center, which straddles center right and center left, that you uh, create uh, pools of opposition on the two extremes. Uh, that's certainly what Macron has accomplished. Uh, at the moment, it looks like the far right uh, uh, pool is a little deeper uh, than the one on the far left. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Uh, there are signs that uh, uh, the left could get together uh, uh, and the, uh, both uh, extremes are, are divided. Uh, so it, it, it's not clear that they're going to unite anytime soon behind any one candidate. Uh, Le Pen has said that this is her last run. So once she's out of the race, it's going to be a free-for-all on the left. There will be a political realignment, party recomposition. And uh, it's really too early to say what form that's going to take. Uh, Zemmour showed that there's a, a pool of votes on the right uh, that is more bourgeois nationalist than working class nationalist. Le Pen, I think, um, now has her strength mainly among working class nationalist protectionist, uh, protectionist voters. There's another group, however, that is more affluent, older, uh, uh, and uh, less comfortable throwing in its lot with working class voters, which not only Zemmour represents, but also uh, Marine Le Pen's niece, Marion Maréchal. Mm. She used to be uh, in Le Pen's party and was elected a deputy of that party. But this year, she chose to back Zemmour and not her own aunt who had raised her as a child. So uh, there's a deep, yeah, a family drama, uh, and in part a religious drama. The difference between them is that uh, Marine Le Pen is not at all religious, uh -huh. whereas Mario Marichal is a devout Catholic. Uh, she's started her own school on the left, which is, is seen or purports to uh, it presents itself as a potential rival to Sciences Po, where they're going to train right-wing cadre to uh, become the leaders of this new uh, bourgeois nationalist right-wing party. So she and Zemmour could uh, throw in their lot together and recruit some uh, uh, turncoats from the, the Gaullist party, like Eric Chotti, who came in second in the uh, Gaullist primary, uh, and who said that he would support Zemmour in the second round if uh, uh, Zemmour had emerged as, uh, as the victor. So uh, there is an element of the Gaullist party that is considerably to the right and could go that way. On the left, uh, as I said, the Mélenchon vote is up for grabs. And it's, uh, I think this is going to be Mélenchon's last campaign also. So what emerges on the left could be very different from the way it looks today. Uh, myself, I think there are quite a number of people who voted for Macron this year who would vote for a left-wing candidate if that candidate were less extreme than Mélenchon uh, and less um, uh, scattered uh, in terms of policy than Jadot, the Green. The problem with the, the French Green Party as compared to the German Green Party is that it's less disciplined, uh, it's less clear about how it will manage the economy uh, than uh, the German Greens. Uh, the Germans uh, have come a long way in uh, 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 putting forward a platform that is is practical and uh, not so radical that many voters find it difficult to understand. The French uh, Green Party has not yet made that transformation. So we could see something on the left as well as the right uh, emerging uh, as the alternative to the, the centrist vote.
Yeah, yeah, no, no, that, that makes sense. And especially as, you know, as I think we've agreed, it is an age of sort of ideological warlords that, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of opportunities for uh, people to emerge and consolidate you know, different factions or different sentiments. Um, so, so in that sense as well, I sort of feel like, I mean, I think Macron will win again and he shows the sort of strength of the center, but I also feel that the, that center is a little bit shaky and like is not, you know, doesn't seem like a, a permanent reality. Um, but, but that might be a good place to end this at. Uh, like, uh, uh, so I, I wanna thank you uh, uh, once again, as like, as always, it's uh, uh, the talking to you as an education. <laughs> and uh, uh, do you have any uh, parting thoughts? Uh, no, it's uh, been my pleasure. Uh, and uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I'm uh, grateful for the opportunity. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye.